before we get started on the sermon today, um, I failed to mention something before both services, and I want to uh, mention it here, and that is to the G family. Uh, our condolences out, go out to them. Kathy's dad unexpectedly uh, died. Uh, was it yesterday, the day before? T- two, days, two days ago. Um, so uh, I, told, I, I talked to her after the service, let her know we'd be praying for her. And uh, so let's pray for her, okay? But uh, as, I, as we go, take a moment to pray. Uh, there's been a, a number of deaths um, in our uh, church family's lives of late. So um, I'm just mindful. We, we pray for them on a regular basis at the 6.30 prayer time we have, uh, Monday through Friday morning. We pray for these folks. We also pray for a group of people who um, are heavily involved in, in being caregivers, uh, doing the, what is necessary to care for uh, their family members. And, and so I, I just want to make you aware as a church body, as we're all here corporately now, of the needs that our family, church family has for prayer. And so uh, as I go to prayer, I invite you to uh, join us at 630 if you're up that early and if you're able to, if it fits in your schedule, or, or join us uh, once in a while. Um, but uh, it is a privilege to be able to go to the Lord in prayer. Uh, so let's do that this morning. Father, we thank you for the way you work in our individual lives and in our corporate lives. Father, death is a real thing, and many of us in this room are experiencing the reality of death and the pain that it brings, the questions that it brings. Father, we're, we're so glad that you are able to minister to our pain and answer our questions. Father, I do pray your blessing upon each of the, of the families that has been recently impacted by the death of a loved one. We pray specifically for Kathy and Dave and the kids uh, and Kathy's mom as, uh, as they are uh, feeling the effects of death in a, in a very real, fresh way uh, this morning. Uh, give them boldness, give them compassion, give them peace as they walk this road. Father, we pray for our caregivers. I thank you for all those that put their lives on hold for the sake of others. As they minister uh, to, to those who in the past had ministered to them and cared for them, Lord, we just pray for sustaining strength. Um, we pray, Lord, that again the gospel would go forth in all these circumstances. I pray the gospel would go forth today. Lord, pray your blessing upon this particular sermon and for the, the content that it, it has and for the point that is trying to be made. I pray, Lord, that you would Restrain my tongue uh, where necessary and loosen it where it brings you glory. Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, I did realize while we were down there singing that I did not get my computer set for the second service. That only take me one second here. Uh, but we're going to continue in our, our uh, series that we have. Uh, it's the series after the series, and that is... Um, okay. Hold on, maybe. Okay, there we go. All right, it was already there. Uh, it's the series of to love like Jesus, right? We're, that's our goal as we, as we consider what we have been focusing on for the last few weeks. It's the, in this context, we want to be a church community that loves like Jesus. It, I hope it, it becomes your, your passion for the, for the coming year and beyond. Uh, certainly, it's what we need to do, and with this, that, that was the series in blue. If you remember the blue uh, uh, hues to the sign, it was Love Like Jesus. But now we've transitioned into a, a series. This may be the last one on this one. I, I, I wrestled with 
different ways of, of diff- bringing up different obstacles, which one are important for us to bring up to actually wake us up to the reality that there are obstacles to loving like Jesus, and as well as uh, taking the danger of uh, the risk of, of preaching too many series and is like, you know, and, and kind of diminish the importance of what we're doing. So overcoming obstacles to love like Jesus is a real thing in our lives. We discussed in the, the first obstacle being failure to forgive. I don't know if you've had failure in your, or, excuse me, an opportunity where, or an event in your life that happened and you find it difficult to forgive someone. I know many people who struggle with forgiveness. And forgiveness is a process. Forgiveness is, a, is, it's also a real thing. We experience forgiveness in Christ, and therefore we are called to forgive others. And we, we talked about that. We are not able to love like Jesus when we fail to forgive others. How can we appreciate the cross of Christ and not allow Christ to minister to others through our forgiveness? Second obstacle was failure to receive forgiveness. This is those, uh, those of us who have struggled with the statement, uh, I can never forgive myself for blank, whatever that might be. And we are called to receive forgiveness for ourselves because when we fail to receive forgiveness, we diminish the cross of Christ. We're saying that the cross is good enough for you. It saves you from your sins. Yes, it saved you from my sins, but, but there's this one thing or this multiplicity of things I just can't get over. I can't receive God's forgiveness for that. He should not forgive me. And we debunked that. We, we said that's, that's not true. We need to receive forgiveness if we're going to love others like Jesus Christ. How can we tell them the good news of the gospel if we're not willing to apply it to ourselves? Today we're going to talk about obstacle number three, which very well may be the reason I picked this little obstacle miniseries um, I've wrestled and wrestled and wrestled with what to say today, how to say it. I'm going to poke the bear on purpose. You know, that's one way of saying it. I'm hoping to, as I've, over the last two weeks, I'm hoping that to, to unpack the heart of God in a way that, that impacts our hearts for God. And um, I hope that's what you experience today. So obstacle number three is failure to confront pride. All right, we're going to look at this, this failure to confront pride, because when we fail to confront pride, we allow idolatry in the church. So although pride is the manifestation of, of much of what I, is driving me today, what I've come to understand in my study and as I unpack these slides, I think it's more an issue of idolatry. And so that's the way the, the, the points will be um, uh, structured this morning. For the first idea, this is not one of the main points, but it is obvious for us if we know Scripture, God takes idolatry seriously. If we go to Exodus 20, verse 3 through 5, we see that in the very first commandment, it says, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them, nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. And so we are told, and and we went through this as we went through the series in Exodus, uh, we understand that God is a jealous God. We understand that that, uh, what he is calling us to throughout his word is a faithfulness to him. He says, he goes on to say, that uh, in the seriousness that he has, we are also 
to be serious about this reality of idolatry. It is real. It is a thing. He goes on to say, I am the Lord your God. I am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and the, to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. God takes it seriously. We ought to take it seriously. The main reason we ought to take it seriously is because the Lord our God is a jealous God. But he flushes that out a little bit, and he tells us that he visits the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. So let's just pause for a minute. There's a couple of you in the room, a couple of pastors that were having a discussion about this verse, and uh, I, I just couldn't get away from it. All right, I started thinking about it, and then in my studying, I came, I really came to this idea of idolatry, and I came onto this te- text of scripture, and I'm just like, it's right there. God allows these little side conversations to take place so that maybe we could take notice of this. What is God saying here? Is he saying that he's punishing my children for my sins? Is he punishing my grandchildren and my great-grandchildren for my sin? Not at all. He is not saying that. He, the words, and I thank for the green, the green uh, doesn't show up that much we just, that very well. Uh, you can see there it is, and there's the red, right? So we got, there you go. All right. This idea of this word visiting is visiting. It doesn't say punishing. He doesn't say punishing the iniquity of the fathers upon the children of the third and fourth generations of those who hate me. He's saying, listen, I'm visiting this iniquity. What iniquity, iniquity are we talking about here? He's saying, listen, I'm a jealous God, and there are those who hate me. And, and those people who hate me, think of all of the pagan religions that are in the world today. All the unbelief that is being believed by individuals taught to their children, who teach it to their children, who teach it to their children. Unless something breaks the chain of instruction, unless faith in the gospel of Jesus Christ comes on the scene in some way to say, no, the pagan, pagan ways are, are not God's ways. Run clear of them. The reality is the iniquity of the fathers, they're teaching it to their sons, their children, and their children's children, and their children's children. That's what, why should we take this seriously? Because as we talk about idolatrous practices, idolatrous beliefs, we're impacting our generations, our next generations. For those of you that come from family members who do not know Jesus Christ as their Savior, and and my particular family is multifaceted in the ways they believe about different things about Jesus. The more that it's taught wrong, the more children that are going to be experiencing the, the ramifications of unbelief. So I want to just focus on how is pride idolatrous this morning, right? So uh, as, we, as we consider this, promotion of self or self-interest removes God from his rightful place in our lives. That's the way I'm saying it. If we're going to talk about pride and how it's idolatrous, an idol usurps the place of Christ in our life. So promotion of self or self-interest removes God from his rightful place in our lives. There are things that go on in our lives. We are either focused on ourselves or we have those parts of our life that we just can't stop talking about and stop telling others. And, and when we have these, these practices and these beliefs and these passions and we're communicating them and, and so it, we are going to, to, to engage in this idea of pride Idolatrous pride from this standpoint, promotion of self or self-interest. 
So pride is the idolatry of self is the way I'm, I'm going to uh, keep it short there. And so churches, I believe, fail to confront this idol- these idolatrous practices at three levels. One, the personal level. Personal idolatry. I call, I call this looking in the mirror. When I look in the mirror, what do I see? I see Greg and I see my interest and my passions and, and those things that I think are my priorities. And, and, and I see those things and, and I can come to worship those things because if they take the place of Christ in my life, if I'm not looking in the mirror and first applying the gospel of Jesus Christ to my life, then I am living idolatry, personal idolatry. There's this, this interpersonal level that we're going to talk about. And, and we'll go into there and, and we're talking about the corporate level. So the personal level is in the mirror. The interpersonal level is through the window. I'm looking at you. You're looking at me. And then the corporate level is our family meeting. We're getting together and we're calling each other out corporately. We're going to do a little of that today. Pray for me. Okay. So what I want to do is break down the remainder of the sermon into two points. All right. And that is... Uh, diagnosis and then treatment. That's usually the helpful way to do it. You don't want to get treatment and then the diagnosis. That seems a little bit backwards. All right, so we're going to do diagnosis and then treatment. So personal diagnosis. We're going to diagnose uh, ourselves for a moment. So I'm going to ask you to ask yourself this question. Am I guilty of idolatrous pride? Remember, I'm not asking the question of you about me. You're asking the question to God about you. And I'm asking the question about me to God. Am I guilty of idolatrous pride? Well, what does idolatrous pride look like? So I'm going to give you a few examples. First, what am I more passionate about? Politics or the gospel? Now, you may, you may fill in that, that first part. It may not be politics for you. You may, be, you may run for the hills when someone brings up politics. I know I mute the TV. I really, I, I just don't get into a lot of that stuff. And when it comes up, well, they say the two things you're not supposed to talk about are what? Politics and, no, I think it's death and taxes. But I think politics is like the close second or third in there, right? Politics is the gospel. What are you more passionate about? It is one of my pet peeves. And I, I shared this with a lady in our church not too long ago uh, as we were talking about politics and different things. I was like, one of my pet peeves is that we're more passionate about our party than we are about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, is that a form of personal idolatry. Well, make sure you're praying about it and, and fill in the blank with something else. What are you passionate about and is it a form of personal idolatry? What am I more interested in? Being right or living righteously? Think about that for a moment. For some people, a, there's no better day than the day that they are right. Christine and I have a little a little quip. It's a little joke that we do, right? It's important to be right as the man of the house, right? Right? Uh, so one day I was right. Woohoo! I was right. So we, we added a little statement, a little self-serving. So I said, oh, Christine, you mean I am right and you are wrong? Right? We add that on there, right? And so now we do it. And I said, all right, Christine, you're right. I'm wrong. It's one of the things we do, right? We have fun with it. It's, it's out of love. But listen, for some people, it's not a joke. I am right, period. No matter who the, the, the contrary perspective might be or the one, I am right. Is that more important to you than living righteously? 
Is it so important that you establish yourself, exalt yourself, excuse me, over someone else's position, whatever it might be, rather than living righteously? You know, Pastor Dave preached a message on Philippians chapter 2 where we were challenged to esteem others better than ourselves. It is important for us to recognize that in Christ, we are supposed to not be number one. You will love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you'll love your neighbor as yourself. The first commandment and the second is like unto it. They're both vitally important. Where do we see ourselves in that? A distant third, if not much, much further. We are, is it right? Is it, is it right for you? I mean, is it best for you to be right or to live righteously? What does it mean to be live righteously? Well, we, you know, we just read the scripture reading was out of uh, Matthew chapter 5. Started off with Beatitudes and ended with the salt and light challenge. But if we want to know what it means to live righteously, let's just read through those, those few verses of, uh, of the Beatitudes. And we'll get there actually in, in a couple of minutes. What about priorities in life? What is my priority? My advancement or the advancement of the gospel? What gets you out of, out of bed in the morning? Is it the idea that I must go and serve my fellow man, I must be a good witness of Jesus Christ, or is it I must go earn a dollar so I can pay my bills, so I can afford this? And listen, I, we have to get out of bed and go to work and work and, so we can pay all those things. But, but is it your passion? Is it your priority? Or, or do you get out of bed in the morning saying, Lord, forgive me, a sinner. Give me the grace and love of Jesus Christ so I can go love like him in, while I am serving my fellow man, and, and earning a paycheck. Whatever it might be, folks, you fill in the gaps. What's your priority? It's certainly, we would say, well, certainly it's the advancement of the gospel. I give to missions. So do, so do I. And many of you do give to missions. Uh, I will say, by the way, our missions giving is down and our tithing giving is down. Enough said about that. All right, so the advancement, for the, advancement of the advancement of the gospel is that's what we do with our money, right? We send missionaries, we send money, we, we do churches in a box, we do all these things. But when is the last time you shared the gospel with anybody? I encourage you, go back to that mirror and share the gospel with yourself first. Just do that. It's practice. If your family's around, great, they get to hear you. But folks, listen, what's your priority? Is it your advancement or the advancement of the gospel? From whom am I seeking approval? This is what I call the fear of man. The reason I call it that is because that's the way it was taught to me, and that's the way I came to understand it, because I am one of these people that struggles with the fear of man. There's, there's a portion of this sermon, okay? I'm, I'm giving you the heads up. There's a portion of this sermon later that I am fearful to utter. I shared it in the first service, and a brother in Christ came to me, and he said, ah, you might want to skip that when it's being streamed. And I have already prayed that God would either slam the door in my mouth or so that I would not say something, or to say it in a better way. So pray for me for that, because who am I seeking to approve? Am I seeking to approve uh, be a, the approval of man? No. Although I struggle with it, it's not why I'm here. Am I seeking the approval of God or my peers? 
This is a real thing in lives, by the way. This is a real thing in teenagers' lives. Probably even younger, but I think it's most acute in teenagers' lives. Where they are feeling this, this impact of, of what other people think of them. Let's, let's encourage the next generations to seek the approval of God. And then let's live it out. Uh, what or who do I fear? So I actually, that, this idea of this fear is, uh, is prompted from this quote. I cannot remember who wrote the quote. All right, but I actually have another quote that's going to follow here in a minute. But it says, we worship what we fear. This is, a, this is powerful stuff. Think about it. If you're fearful of something, whatever it might be, okay, I don't mind snakes. But I don't like spiders. All right? That's the idea of a spider comes in the room. No, no throwing spiders at me. Okay? I will not freak out. I will squash them like the bug they are. And of course, they're, I mean, they're anacroids, anac- anacroids, anacroids, whatever. Anyway, it's the idea of when something fearful comes into our life, we find out what is truly, what, what's our priority, what, uh, who's on the throne, right? I'm not, spiders is just a simple, silly little question, but what about um, fear of the unknown? What about fear of death? What about any number of fears. Is God bigger than your fear is the question. I'm not saying we all have fears. It's a matter of subjecting those fears to God. But who do I fear or what do I fear? We worship what we fear. There's this book entitled, We Become What We Worship. That, this may be where that quote came from, but this is a powerful book. And what I, uh, I remember reading it, and, it's, and, the, and, and I agree with this. This is a book review. This is somebody who wrote a book, uh, review on this book. He said, Beale's thesis was extremely clear and well-presented. Notice this. This is his thesis of the book. This is what the point he's trying to prove. What we revere is what we resemble, either for ruin or restoration. Well, that's very fancy wording. What does it mean? Well, the nice thing is the reviewer tells us. If we worship idols, we become vain like them, having eyes but not seeing, ears but not hearing, and are destroyed by them. If we are idolatrous people, if we have personal idolatry, we're not going off into a closet and worshiping a, a, a carved wooden image or a carved stone image. Like I said, we may be standing in the mirror or we may be looking at other aspects of things in our personal lives. But listen, when we allow those things to usurp the place of Christ in our life, we are guilty of idolatry and we, uh, and we are destroyed by it. And that's the premise of this book is the idea that that's the ruin right? He says, what we revere is what we resemble. Either for ruin, the idea of idolatrous is ruined and we destroyed. But if we worship the true God, we become like him, reflecting his glory to the world around us. This is the passion that we're called to be living out This is what we're supposed to desire to be transformed into the image of Jesus Christ. It is that process that takes place. It's that sanctifying process that says, no, all the stuff that's happening in my life, as much as it's uncomfortable and painful and all these things and embarrassing, and I'm willing to go through all of it if it means I'll look more like Jesus Christ. We become what we worship is what he's saying here. And And I would like all of us to adopt this idea that we desire to become like Jesus. So does my life exhibit godly fear? 
Am I characterized by, by engaging in the gospel every morning of my life so that as I take that next step, I'm taking it in faith. I'm taking it in the faith of, the, of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, who, who died for my sins, who faced the most cruel death, who died a death that he did not need to die because he, had been sin- he was sinless. He is sinless, but he died on that cross for me. Does my life exhibit godly fear? Am I willing to submit my life, subject my priorities, my passions, my interests to the things of God and let him be foremost in my life? That brings us to the interpersonal diagnosis. And the interpersonal diagnosis asks the same question, but just a little different. Does your life exhibit godly fear? What does this mean? I have been lovingly confronted by brothers in Christ since you have been my church family. I've probably shared this before, and I'm, not, I'm, I'm actually proud of it. Not pride for me, because we're dealing with pride. I'm proud in the right way of these brothers in Christ that are seeking my, my best. They took a risk. A wound of a friend, the wounds of a friend are faithful. They came, they spoke. It hurt, I grew. God be the glory. I have done it in other people's lives. And sometimes it's received in the same way that this all went. And they're like, yeah, yeah, Greg, oh, man, thanks for saying that. I never knew that until you pointed it out. But I've also done it where I've either lost friends or uh, the, the, the relationship was no longer the same. Now, granted, I can be wrong, Right? Good intentions count for something, right? I mean, I was trying to, but as a result of my stepping in and not looking in the mirror, but looking through the window and watching the lives of those around me and, and taking a chance to, to, to speak the gospel into a situation, that's dangerous territory, and you may, lose, you may lose friends, but you also may win a brother or a sister, Right? That's the idea of church discipline. It's not to kick people out. It's to restore one another to that faithful walk in Jesus Christ. To that idea that I I didn't realize I was erring. I didn't realize I was sinning. Now that I know, I will seek for God to change me from the inside out. Are you guilty? Are you guilty of idolatrous pride? That's, That's a question we can ask one another. Be careful with it. But I think our relationships call for us to ask this question. Think about Luke 9 and 46 through 48. Jesus confronts his disciples. He says, Then the disciples, uh, excuse me, then the dispute arose among them, speaking of the disciples, as to which of them would be greatest. We know this story. And Jesus, being Jesus, confronted those that he loves. And he says, Perceiving the thought of their heart, took a little child and set him by him and said to them, Whoever receives this little child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me, receives him who sent me. For he who is least among you all will be great. Jesus was observing the lives of those to whom he loved. His disciples, his followers, the ones that were saying, Jesus, we, we look to you. Will you teach us about the Father? Will you teach us about life? They didn't fully understand who he was, but they understood this. There was something about being the greatest in the context that it's the greatest in the kingdom. Interesting, talking about being the greatest in the kingdom. You know, who's going to sit on his right hand and who's going to sit on the left? That's, that's another, one of the other gospels portrays it that way. 
But in the, 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 the Beatitudes, the, excuse me, the Sermon on the Mount, of which the Beatitudes begins, that portion that Andrew read for us, that's also talking about kingdom living. What it means to be a citizen of the kingdom. We'll talk more about that in a little bit. Here we see uh, that the least is the one who's actually great. Jesus, you know, Jeff preached that message on, on John 13, right? All right, talking about the, the John 12, John 13, 12 or 13, the washing of the feet. Jesus modeled it for his, he taught it, he modeled it, he lived it, he encourages us and he commands us to do the same. What about corporate diagnosis? What is this? This is that family meeting I mentioned earlier. Are we as a body of believers, uh, are we guilty of idolatrous pride? Well, I don't know. I can look at church history and I can look at certain hist- uh, churches that, that stood on, on uh, principles or values that were later pointed out to not be godly. They were not in Scripture. We have all kinds of, of practices that we conduct as men and women that are really, and we're teaching them as the doctrines of God. And we, gotta, we have to stop doing that. And so I don't, I don't know if there is in, in the history of this church, but I can say in the history of the church, there's all kinds of examples of, of uh, deficient ways that we've, we've lifted up these, these pet principles or ideas that say this is what it's about. No, it's about the gospel. And only ever about the gospel. And when we, as, as we have this family meeting and as we're talking about life and ministry, you know, someone ought to have the, the, uh, the, the humility to stand in front of the body of believers and say, we're wrong. We're erring from the truth. Whatever it is has become an idol. I can name them, but if I name them in church history, I'm fearful I'll, I'll divert the, the, what we're getting, being challenged with here. Are we guilty of corporate idolatry? Does your life, does our life exhibit godly fear? 1 Peter 2, uh, 1 through 10, this passage is not confronting in, in, in its direct sense. It's actually encouraging. So listen, we have personal idolatry. We have uh, interpersonal idolatry going on. And then we also have this corporate thing that goes on. But Peter says, listen, corporately, don't focus on all the negativity. Don't focus on all the stuff you disagree on. The Word of God will correct all of that. But look, notice this. Therefore, laying aside all those things, malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, and all the evil speaking, right? Let's lay all that stuff aside. And as newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the Word that you may grow thereby. God is interested in his people growing. Idolatry hinders that growth. He's saying, listen, that you may grow thereby if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is gracious. And I would be remiss to not ask, have you individually experienced the grace of God? Do you know the forgiveness of your sins? Have you allowed that forgiveness to roll over into the forgiveness of other people's lives? And will you allow this reality that the grace of God is present in your life to invade your pet priorities, passions, and all those things that divert you from the gospel. If you've come to faith in Christ, then we are called to live like Christ and to love like Christ. But if you've never come to faith in Christ, right? If you've never experienced that grace, 
then we invite you to experience it today because this is what the gospel is all about, is Jesus dying for you, forgiving you of your sins. It is the good news. Peter goes on to say, coming to him, speaking of Jesus, as to a living stone. Jesus is a living stone. It was rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. You also as living stones. Now he's talking to his disciples. He's talking to us. Are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. We are called to be actively engaged in worship every moment of every day as living stones being built up as a spiritual house. We, the, our corporate gatherings, our corporate reality, our corporate relationship is vital to our growth. And he's saying, listen, put all the mouth and every, everything aside and bask in the beauty of what is called the church. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect and precious. This is talking about Jesus Christ. And he who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Why did I highlight this idea? That's one of the areas that we struggle with, don't we? Is shame, we're, we're fearful of being shamed. That's pride. It's pride. We need to be willing to be shamed if shame is the due consequence for our sin. If shame is the reality of, of what's going to humble us and bring us in back into right fellowship with God, and, and then, then let, let, us, let me be shamed. Let us be shamed. Therefore, to you who believe, he is precious. Precious is that thing that takes is foremost in our mind, right? We can think of all signs of precious stones. Precious Is Jesus precious? Because he's saying, therefore, to you who believe in Jesus Christ, he is precious. But to those who are disobedient, the stone which the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble being disobedient to the word to which they also were appointed. So this idea of the stumbling of Jesus. Listen, if we are living our lives with a priority of the gospel, with a priority of Jesus Christ in our life, we are going to upset some people. And I'll, play, I'll, I'll explain this a little bit more later, but I'm just saying it ought to be expected as we are disciples of Jesus Christ, basking in the beauty of the church and, and encouraging one another and seeking to grow one another and be grown by one another, we should expect that the world who does not know Christ would, would stumble over him. But you who are a chosen generation, this is us, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, who once were not a people but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy but now have obtained mercy. So this, this, is, this is the last portion of that section. So I'll just say, listen, we've gone through a diagnosis process. And I, I, I think in confidence I can tell you today, we are all ill with pride at different times in our life, maybe different times through the day. Pride isn't one of those secret sins that no one ever talks about. Pride is the one we always talk about, along with anger. Yeah, those prideful, boastful people. Yeah, glad I'm not one of them. How does that work? I'm so thankful for my humility. It's like, folks, it's pride. 
And that's, that's an obvious way. And I'm just saying, it's not so obvious when you're the one guilty of it. And we may struggle in different ways. I will say, whether it's personal, interpersonal, or corporate, it's in our church. And I think this is the passion of my heart this morning, is to call it out and say, let's, let's start doing things differently. Let's, let's see what treatment we have here, right? First phase of our treatment is remember what God honors. Well, what does God honor? Well, if you think about the passage we read earlier, Matthew 5 and the Beatitudes, notice I just took all the blessings parts, right? Those that blessed are the poor in spirit, those who mourn the meek, those who hunger, for thir- uh, for, uh, uh, hunger and thirst for righteousness, the merciful, the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers, those who are persecuted for righteousness snake sake, not, not, I got snake on the brain, all right, for righteousness sake, blessed are they, uh, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. This isn't talking about, I, I had, I had someone near and dear to me tell me one time that because that his religious tradition has experienced so much persecution, they must be right. Persecution doesn't equate that you're right. It's persecution for righteousness' sake. It's persecution for Christ's sake that makes the difference. And that's why people are blessed. So look at these. First, that very first one, it says, blessed are the poor in spirit. What does that poor in spirit mean? That poor in spirit means poor is, it's, it's a virtue. It's, 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 uh, it's revealed to us as a virtue. Blessed are the poor in spirit. It's a virtue. It must refer not to a poor quality of faith. In other words, I'm poor in spirit. Woe is me. I don't have the faith other people have. It's not that at all. Uh, It must refer not to a poor quality of faith, but to the acknowledgement of one's spiritual powerlessness and bankruptcy apart from Christ. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Father, I come to you this morning confessing that I am a sinner. I come to you this morning recognize that the gospel of Jesus Christ is what has paid for my sin. Father, you have redeemed me because of the power of the cross. You've redeemed me because of the sacrificial uh, atonement of Jesus Christ on that cross. Lord, please work through me. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Let's pray that prayer individually. Let's pray that together corporately. Father, we are a room full of sinners. Help us to love one another. It's the acknowledgement of our spiritual powerlessness. We bring nothing. We bring nothing of value into this world. It is all by who Christ is and what he has done. We are bankrupt apart from Christ. I thought that was a powerful verse. Here's here's the way we understand that God honors, uh, uh, remembering who and what God honors. He honors those that are doing uh, all those things that were listed in the Beatitudes. And what, how has he honored them? Well, he gives them the kingdom of heaven is the one listed in verse 3 and the one in verse 10. If you manifest, if, if, if you are these things, this is true of you. And it's not, if you, it's not if you will do these things. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Oh, let me be poor in spirit today. No, actually those poor in spirit are genuine Christians 
who have realized they can't come to a relationship with God through their own works. They realize they are devoid of good works, and they trust in the, in the work of Christ. That's a poor in spirit person. That's all Christians who are legitimately Christians. And he says, listen, for them, they experience the kingdom of heaven. That's in the present tense, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Notice the rest of it. It says, these people who are poor in spirit, who, who will inherit the kingdom, for they ultimately will be comforted in the kingdom. Not that they will be devoid of, of comfort in the here and now, but this is talking about that eschatological, that future reality of believers. This inheritance is reserved for us in heaven. He's saying there's coming a day, folks. Life is tough on this earth, but there's coming a day when sin and death will be done away with completely and you will receive full comfort. You will inherit the earth. It'll be sinless. You will you'll be filled you're hungering and thirsting for righteousness, you'll have its fill. You shall see God. You have called the sons of God, and there's the other one. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is a bookends to that portion. Folks, this is what we are as Christians. And God, we ought to, if we want to receive treatment for our, for our, our, our ailment, right, uh, then listen, take this first phase, which is remember who and what God honors. He's honoring those who come to faith in him. This is all true of us. All these characteristics which Jesus labels as blessed are usually not welcomed in the world at large. Hostility may well arise against Jesus' followers. Imagine that. But even persecuted people are seen by Christ as fortunate. Those who have experienced, think about the, the believers in Afghanistan. We pray for them, and we need to pray for them. We need to pray for all believers who are struggling underneath uh, tyranny and, and oppression. They don't get a buy on living out their faith. They actually are more likely to stand out more because of the contrast of their light in the midst of darkness. And so they're going to pay consequences that we are not necessarily paying as we live in a, an environment and a culture that, that is certainly getting more aggressive against Christianity, but it's certainly not what's going on in Afghanistan. He's saying, listen, even those folks in Afghanistan and the underground church in China, they are fortunate because they are in Christ. This persecution, however, must be the result of righteous living. Remember, do you want to be right or do you want to live righteously, right? It has to be, uh, and not due to individual sin or tactlessness, right? What is even more tra tragic, and, and folks, I, I got to use the, the red pointer on this one, right? So there it is. What is so sad is what is even more tragic is when one Christian persecutes another. You ever experienced the persecution of, a, of your brothers or sisters in Christ? I know people who have. What's more tragic? The world persecuting because of your faith or fellow Christians persecuting, persecuting you as he continues, allegedly because of righteousness. Really? When the persecution actually stems from too narrow a definition of Christian belief or behavior. There's all kinds of metaphors, similes, you know. This is the idea of one animal eating their young. That's disgusting, right? No way should there be persecution of one believer from another believer. The only way that happens is when there's pride in the midst. 
I think it's like, I, I, this is the way I liken it. Like children on a playground, our words cut. I told you, I told you recently, last week, I think the guy I threw around the playground in, in, in sixth grade and uh, never forget it. Well, I wasn't silent while I was doing it. Our looks wound. You ever, you ever had someone roll their eyes at you at a statement? You know, I believe, I believe this. Uh, this, is, this is what I believe about it. Really? That's stupid. How can you believe that? Our looks wound. Our actions communicate that we believe we are better than the object of our disdain or horror of horrors, the person of our disdain. Are you disdaining other believers in Christ? I mean, you shouldn't disdain unbelievers either. Love them like Jesus. But we need to love one another. I think it's here <laughs> that I have to make a decision. There's a couple I'm going to share right off, the, right off the bat, right? Our actions communicate what we believe, that we believe we're better than other people. So I'm going to give you some examples. First example, masks. We're in a pandemic. Are you disdaining those who are wearing masks? This, this mask stuff is a joke. It doesn't do anything. Are you on this end of it? I'm disdaining those who don't wear masks. If you're not wearing a mask, I have no time for you. That's the safe example. It gets a little bit more gritty when I bring in vaccination. If you don't get vaccinated, you are not a Christian. Or at least, you're not loving like Jesus. If you get vaccinated, you're a sellout to the government. Folks, listen, believe what you want to believe. I think we have extremes that we're dealing with. And I will say this. I'm not going to rebuke you if you wear or don't wear a mask. I'm not going to rebuke you if you get or don't get the vaccination. Apply wisdom, pray for wisdom, make decisions upon that, and then live it out. Can we stop calling our brothers and sisters in Christ to account for our priorities and our passions and our view of life? Are we not supposed to be focused on the gospel of Jesus Christ? How dare we get distracted by masks and vaccinations? I, I honestly, I'm not going to even tell you what I think because I'm allowed my opinion. And you are too. And we got we to gotta steer clear. I got to steer clear of rabbit trails and long discussions or we'll never finish this. This is what we need to do. Folks, there are many areas in life where we can agree to disagree. And I've decided I'm not going to be specific, but I'll be somewhat general about the third example because I don't have time. And I'm trusting the Lord for this one. There are so many areas of our lives that we puff the chest out to our brothers and sisters in Christ. How could you 
do such a thing. A real Christian believes this. Or we allow ourselves to to get on our high and mighty individual, corporate, idolatrous pride and start pointing fingers in all kinds of directions when we're supposed to be obedient to God's word and say, esteem others better than ourselves. Can we not think the best of one another? So if a brother or sister in Christ says something that has us scratching our head, how does that, how does that measure up to the gospel? Not how does that measure up to my political stance? How does that measure up to my understanding of social justice? How does that measure up to, to whatever it might be? How does that measure up to the gospel? And then think the best of that person and then do some interpersonal idolatrous pride examinations and say, hey, brother, sister, this is the way I took it. How did you mean it? And then think the best of them and then talk about the gospel and grow in your understanding of the gospel because either one, one reality be true, you will grow through the process the other person will grow through the process or both of you will grow through the process and no matter what growth takes place, God is glorified. Folks, we've got to stop getting all distracted by issues that are not the center focus of what the church is called to be and to do and that is to make and mature disciples of Jesus Christ. We need to have the conversations. We just need to do them in the right way and for the right purposes. All right, so we need to remember what God honors. We also need to remember what God hates, and we'll, we'll finish with this. What does God hate? Does God hate anything? Well, apparently so. These six things the Lord hates, Proverbs 6, 16. Yes, seven are an abomination to him. The first one listed, a proud look. A lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that deceives wicked, uh, devises wicked plans, feet that are swift to running to evil, a false witness who speaks lies, and one who sows discord among brethren. Folks, do we love who Jesus loves? Do we love what Jesus loves? Are we loving like Jesus? Do we hate what God hates? Do we all these? Pride can manifest themselves in any of those. But notice that last one. One who sows discord among brethren. How dare we sow discord because of our self-righteousness? Folks, listen. I, as we think about this, this obstacle number three, failure to confront pride, when we fail to confront pride, we allow idolatry in the church we're asking this, um, I, well, I'm asking you this morning to consider, let's confront idolatrous pride at all three levels. This is the invitation. Let's look in that mirror. Remind ourselves of the truth of the gospel. And then ask ourselves, am I guilty of personal idolatry? And while looking in that mirror, just go ahead and say, am I Am I guilty of interpersonal idolatry? You know, I mean, listen, as I, as I look at my relationships, are we as a church guilty of corporate idolatry? I don't know if it's true, but I think we need to confront it when we see it. And that can be done well or not so well. We need to be tactful. We need to be loving in the process of doing this. 
I think we need to begin by looking in the mirror, and I think we, we need to remember what God honors and what God hates. But lastly, out of the same passage, I forgot to put the slides in, in the presentation, but also in Matthew 5, 13 through 16, we're told two things. We're told that we are salt and that we are light. I have to, I'll go quickly, but I'll say this. The emphasis of both the first word in 13 and the word in 14 is the idea that you, you yourself, this is true of you. This is true of all believers. Jesus is talking to his disciples. This is, this is a manifesto for the kingdom. This is, this is the idea. Like, listen, God honors the, all the blessed or the poor in spirit. But, hey, listen, you also need to understand that he, has, he is encouraging you with who you are in Christ. He says, you yourself, you are the salt of the earth. It's not an if. It's not if you're salt. Oh, I may be one of those Christians that's lost my saltiness. Well, to be honest with you, let's, we could deal with some of that and say, well, what's your understanding of that? He, he's not saying, he's saying very specifically, you are something. You, you are being something. You are being salt of the earth. You are being light of the world. You are this. You are salt. You are light. I am salt. I am light. Being a disciple of Jesus Christ means this is true. To be salt means that you are an inhibitor to corruption and decay. You are preserving uh, influence in the world. Why? Because Jesus Christ dwells within you. And the gospel has set you free and you are free to tell others. You are the light of the world. We're not the actual light like Jesus. We reflect his light. Because Jesus is in us, we have this light. You are the light of the world. It's not an if. You are. If you're a disciple of Jesus Christ, you are. And our lives ought to reflect who we are. So we ought to be salty and we ought to be light. He goes on to say in verse 16, Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. We are called to be shiners of Christ's light into the lives of those around us. And our pridefulness, and our our prideful idolatry, excuse me, hinders that light. It's still there because we're a Christian, but people get confused when we say one thing and do something else. Say that we're a Christian, but act like a non-Christian. When we take positions that are not thus saith the Lord, and when we act unloving towards our brothers and sisters, when we eat our young, the world says, something's not right about that. But let's be encouraged this morning. Let's remember what God honors, the beatitude, life of the Beatitudes. What does he hate? The passage out of Proverbs 6, 16 through 19. And last, what God calls us to be in that assault and light. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for uh, the time we've had in your word. Lord, there's so much more to be said There's so much growth that needs to take place in our lives. Father, as we consider what we're going to do when we leave this place, I pray that you would not let our lives rest until we look in that mirror and ask you to do your work in our life. Humble us, Father, through the power of your word. 
Give us the ability to exercise our faith in Christ in all our relationships. To lead non-believers to the gospel that's making disciples. And in our inner relationship, interpersonal relationships with believers as we mature one another as iron sharpens iron. Father, I pray that you would do your work in our lives through your gospel and may we rejoice in it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.